Chapter forty two of Fenton's Quest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Fenton's Quest by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter forty two. The Pleasures of Wincombe. That shrill, anguish-stricken cry which Ellen Whitelaw had heard on the night of the stranger's visit to Wincombe Farm haunted her afterwards with a wearisome persistence. She could not forget that wild, unearthly sound. She could not help continually trying to find some solution for the mystery, until her brain was tired with the perpetual effort. Ponder upon this matter as she might, she could find no reasonable explanation of the enigma and in spite of her common sense, a quality which she possessed a very fair share, she was fain to believe that at last this grim, bare-looking old house was haunted, and that agonized shriek she and Mrs. Tadman had heard that night was only the ghost sound of some crying wrung from a bleeding heart in days gone by, the echo of an anguish that had been in the far past. She even went so far as to ask her husband one day if he had ever heard that the house was haunted and whether there was any record of crime or wrong that had been done in it in the past. Mr. Whitelaw seemed scarcely to relish the question, but after one of his meditative pauses laughed his wife's inquiry to scorn, and told her that there were no ghosts at Wincombe except the ghosts of dead rats that had ravaged the granaries, and certainly they seemed to rise from their graves in spite of poison and traps, cats and ferrets, and that as to anything that had been done in the house in days gone by he had never heard tell that his ancestors had ever done anything but eat drink and sleep and save money from year's end to year's end and a hard time they had of it to pay their way and put something by in the face of all difficulties that surrounded the path of a farmer if ellen whitelaw's life had been as the lives of happier women full of small daily cares and all-engrossing domestic interests the memory of that unearthly scream would no doubt have faded out of her mind ere long instead of remaining as it did a source of constant perplexity to her but there was no interest no single charm in her life there was nothing in the world left for her to care for the fertile flats around wincombe farmhouse bounded her universe day by day she rose to perform the same monotonous duties sustained by no lofty aim cheered by neither friendship nor affection for she could not teach herself to feel anything warmer than toleration for her daily companion, Mrs. Tadman, only working laboriously because existence was more endurable to her when she was busy than when she was idle. It was scarcely strange, then, that she brooded upon the memory of that night when the nameless stranger had come to Wincombe, and that she tried to put the fact of his coming and that other incident of the cry together, and to make something out of the two events by that means but put them together as she might she was no nearer any solution of the mystery that her husband and the stranger could have failed to hear that piercing shriek seemed almost impossible yet both had denied hearing it the story of the stranger having knocked his shin and cried out in doing so appeared like a feeble attempt to account for that wild cry vain and hopeless were all her endeavours to arrive at any reasonable explanation and her attempts to get anything like an opinion out of mrs tadman were utterly useless mr whitelaw's cousin was still inclined to take a gloomy view of the stranger's visit in spite of her kinsman's assurance that the transaction between himself and the unknown was a profitable one horse-racing if not parting with a farm mrs tadman opined was at the bottom of the business 
and when did horse-racing ever fail to lead to ruin sooner or later? It was only a question of time. Ellen sighed, remembering how her father had squandered his employer's money on the race-course, and how, for that folly of his, she had been doomed to become Stephen Whitelaw's wife. But there did not seem to her to be anything of the horsey element in her husband's composition. He was never away from home, except to attend to his business at market, and she had never seen him spelling over the sporting papers, as her father had been wont to do, night after night with a perplexed brow and an anxious face making calculations upon the margin of the print every now and then with the stump of a lead pencil and chewing the end of it meditatively in the intervals of his lection although mrs whitelaw did not like mrs tadman associate the idea of the stranger's visit with any apprehension of her husband's impending ruin she could not deny that some kind of change had arisen him since that event he had always drunk a good deal in his slow quiet manner which impressed people unacquainted with his habits with the notion of his sobriety even when he was steadily emptying the bottle before him but he drank more now and sat longer over his drink and there was an aspect of trouble and uneasiness about him at times which fairly puzzled his wife of course the most natural solution for all of this was the one offered by the dismally prophetic tadman Stephen Whitelaw had been speculating or gambling, and his affairs were in disorder. He was not a man to be affected by anything but the most sordid considerations, one would suppose. Say that he had lost money, and there you had a key to the whole. He got into a habit of sitting up at night, after the rest of the household had gone to bed. He had done this more or less from the time of his marriage, and Mrs. Tadman told Ellen that the habit was one which had arisen within the last few months. He would always see to the fastenings of the house with his own eyes, Mrs. Tadman said. But up to last autumn he used to go upstairs with me and the servants. It's a new thing for him to sit up drinking his glass of grog in the parlor by himself. The new habit seemed to grow upon Mr. Whitelaw more rapidly after that visit of the strangers. He took to sitting up till midnight, an awful hour in a farmhouse, and Ellen generally found the spirit bottle empty in the morning night after night he went to bed sodden with drink once when his kinswoman made some feeble remonstrance with him about his change in his habits he told her savagely to hold her tongue he could afford to drink as much as he pleased he wasn't likely to come upon her to pay for what he took as for his wife she unhappily cared nothing what he did he could not become more obnoxious to her than he had been from the first hour of her acquaintance with him let him do what he would Little by little, finding no other explanation possible, Mrs. Whitelaw grew to believe quite firmly in the supernatural nature of that unforgotten cry. She remembered the unexplainable footstep which she heard in the padlocked room in the early dusk of that New Year's Day, when Mrs. Tadman and she explored the old house, and she associated these two sounds in her mind as of the like ghostly character. From this time forward she shrank with a nervous terror from that darksome passage leading to the padlocked door at the end of the house. She never had any occasion to go in this direction. The rooms in this wing were low, dark, and small, and had been unused for years. It was scarcely a wonder if rats had congregated behind the worm-eaten wainscot to scare nervous listeners with their weird scratchings and scramblings but no one could convince ellen whitelaw that the sounds she had heard on new year's day were produced by anything so earthly as a rat 
with all that willingness to believe in a romantic impossibility rather than in a commonplace improbability so natural to the human mind she was more ready to conceive the existence of a ghost than her own sense of hearing might have been less powerful than her fancy about the footstep she was quite as positive as she was about the scream and in the last instance she had the evidence of mrs tadman's senses to support her she was surprised one day to find when the household drudge mary holden had been cleaning the passage and rooms in that deserted wing a task very seldom performed that the girl had the same aversion to that part of the house which she felt herself but of which she had never spoken in the presence of the servants if it wasn't for mrs tadman driving and worrying after me all the time i am at work i don't think i could stay there mum martha told her mistress it isn't often i like to be fidgeted and followed but anything's better than being alone in that unked place it's rather dark and dreary certainly martha ellen answered with an admirable assumption of indifference but as we haven't any of us got to live there that doesn't much matter it isn't that mum i wouldn't mind the darkness and the dreariness and i'm sure such a place for spiders i never did see in my life there was one as i took down with my broom to-day and scrunched as big as a small crab but it's worse than that the place is haunted who told you that sarah batts sarah batts why how should she know anything about it she hasn't been here so long as you and she came straight from the workhouse i think master must have told her mum your master would have never said anything so foolish i know that he doesn't believe in ghosts and he keeps all his garden seeds in the locked room at the end of the passage so he must go there sometimes himself oh yes mum i know that master goes in there i've seen him go that way at night with a candle well you silly girl he wouldn't use the room if he thought it was haunted would he there are plenty more empty rooms in the house i don't know about that i'm sure mum but anyhow i know sarah batts told me that the passage was haunted don't you never go in there martha she says unless you want to have your blood froze i've heard things there that have frozen mine and i never should go mum if it wasn't for mrs tadman's worrying and driving about the place being cleaned once in a way and sarah batts is right mum however she may have got to know it for i have heard things what things moaning and groaning like as if someone was in pain but all very low and i could never make out where it came from as to the place being haunted i have no more doubt about it than about my catechism but martha you ought to know it's very silly and wicked to believe such things ellen whitelaw said feeling it her duty to lecture the girl a little and yet half inclined to believe her the moanings and groanings as you call them were only sounds made by the wind i dare say oh dear no mum martha answered shaking her head in a decided manner the wind never made noises such as i heard but i don't want to make you nervous mum only i'd sooner lose a month's wages than stay for an hour alone in the west wing it was strange certainly a matter of no importance perhaps this idle belief of a servant's these sounds which harm no one and yet all these circumstances worried and perplexed ellen whitelaw having so little else to think about she brooded upon them incessantly and was gradually getting into a low nervous way if she complained which she did very rarely there was no one to sympathize with her mrs tadman had so many ailments of her own such complicated maladies such deeply rooted disorders that she could scarcely be expected to give much attention to the trivial sufferings of another person 
ah my dear she would exclaim with a groan if ellen ventured to complain of a racking headache when you've lived as long as i have and gone through what i've gone through and have got such a liver as i've got you'll know what bad health means but at your age with your constitution it's nothing more than fancy and then mrs tadmode would branch off into a graphic description of her own maladies to which ellen was fain to listen patiently wondering vaguely as she listened whether the lapse of years would render her as worrisome a person as mrs tadman she had no sympathy from anyone her father came to wincombe farm once a week or so and sat drinking and smoking with mr whitelaw but ellen never saw him alone he seemed carefully to avoid the chance of being alone with her guiltily conscious on his part in the contriving of her marriage and fearing to hear some complaint about her lot he pretended to take it for granted that her fate was entirely happy congratulated her frequently upon her prosperity and reminded her continually that it was a fine thing to be the sole mistress of the house she lived in instead of a mere servant as he himself was and as she had been at the grange laboring for the profit of other people up to this time mr carley had had some reason to be disappointed with the result of his daughter's marriage so far as his own prosperity was affected thereby not a sixpence beyond that one advance of the two hundred pounds had the bailiff been able to extort from his son-in-law it was the price that mr whitelaw had paid for his wife and he meant to pay no more he told william carley as much one day when the question of money matters was pushed rather too far told him in the plainest language but it was hard but that two hundred pounds had saved the bailiff from imminent destruction he was obliged to be satisfied with this advantage and to bide his time i'll have it out with the mean hound sooner or later he muttered to himself as he walked homewards after a social evening with the master of wincombe one evening mr carley brought his daughter a letter it was from gilbert fenton who was quite unaware of ellen's marriage and had written to her at the grange this letter afforded her the only pleasure she had known since fate had united her to stephen whitelaw it told her that marian holbrook was living and in all probability safe though by no means in good hands she had sailed to america with her father but her husband was in hot pursuit of her and her husband was faithful i have schooled myself to forgive him gilbert went on to say for i know that he loves her and that must needs condone my wrongs i look forward anxiously to the return from america and hope for a happy reunion amongst us all when your warm friendship shall not be forgotten i am waiting impatiently for news from new york and will write you again directly i hear anything definite we have suffered the torments of suspense for a long weary time but i trust and believe that the sky is clearing this was not much but it was more than enough to relieve ellen carley's mind of a heavy load her dear young lady as she called marian was not dead not lying at the bottom of that cruel river at which ellen had often looked with a shuddering horror of late thinking of what might be she was safe and would no doubt be happy this was something amid the wreck of her own fortunes ellen whitelaw was unselfish enough to rejoice in this her husband asked to see mr fenton's letter which he spelt over with his usual deliberate air and which seemed to interest him more than ellen would have supposed likely knowing as she did how deeply he had resented marian's encouragement of frank randall's courtship so she's gone to america with her father has she he said when he had perused the document twice 
I shouldn't have thought anybody could have persuaded her to leave that precious husband of hers. And she's gone off to America, and he after her. That's a rather queer start, ain't it, Nell? Mrs. Whitelaw did not care to discuss the business with her husband. There was something in his tone, a kind of veiled malice, which made her angry. "'I don't suppose you care whether she's alive or dead,' she said impatiently. "'So you needn't trouble yourself to talk about her.' "'Needn't I? Oh, she's too grand a person to be talked about of by such as me, is she?' "'Never mind, Nell. Don't be cross. And when Mrs. Holbrook comes back to England, you shall go and see her.' "'I will,' answered Ellen, "'if I have to walk to London to do it.' "'Oh, but you shan't walk. You shall go by rail. I'll spare you the money for that, for once in a way, though I'm not over-fond of wasting money.' Day by day Mr. Whitelaw's habits grew more secluded and morose. It was not to be supposed that he was troubled by those finer feelings which might have made the misery of a better man. But even in his dull nature there may have been some dim sense that his marriage was a failure and a mistake that in having his own way in this matter he had in no wise secured his own happiness. He could not complain of his wife's conduct in any one respect. She was obedient to his will in all things, providing for his comfort with scrupulous regularity, industrious, indefatigable even. As a housekeeper and a partner in his fortunes, no man could have desired a better wife. Yet dimly, in that sluggish soul, there was the consciousness that he had married a woman who hated him, that he had bought her with a price. And being a man prone to think the worst of his fellow-creatures, Mr. Whitelaw believed that, sooner or later, his wife meant to have her revenge upon him somehow. She was waiting for his death, perhaps, calculating that, being so much her senior, and a hard-working man, he would die soon enough to leave her a young widow. And then, of course, she would marry Frank Randall, and all the money which he, Stephen, had amassed by the sacrifice of every pleasure in life would enrich that supercilious young coxcomb. It was hard to think of, and Stephen pondered upon the expediency of letting Wycombe farm and sinking all his savings into the purchase of an annuity. He could not bring himself to contemplate selling the house and lands that belonged to his race for so many generations. He clung to the estate, not from any romantic reverence for the past, not from any sentimental associations connected with those who had gone before him, but from the mere force of habit, which rendered this grim, ugly old house and these flat, shelterless fields dearer to him than all the rest of the universe. He was a man to whom to part with anything was agony, and if he loved anything in the world, he loved Wincombe. The possession of the place had given him importance for twenty years past he could not fancy himself unconnected with wincombe his labours had improved the estate too he could not endure to think how some lucky purchaser might profit by his prudence and sagacity there had been some fine old oaks on the land when he inherited it all mercilessly stubbed up at the beginning of his reign there had been tall strangling hedgerows all of tangle with blackberry bushes ferns and dog roses hazel and slow trees all done away with by his order. No, he could never bring himself to sell Wincombe, nor was the purchase of annuity a transaction which he was inclined to accomplish. It was a pleasing notion, certainly, that idea of concentrating all his hoarded money upon the remaining years of his life, retiring from the toils of agriculture, and giving himself up for the rest of his days to an existence of luxurious idleness. But on the other hand, 
it would be a bitter thing to surrender his fondly loved money for the poor return of an income to deprive himself of all opportunity of speculating and increasing his store so the annuity scheme lay dormant in his brain as it were for the time being it was something to have in reserve and to carry out any day that his wife gave him fair cause to doubt her fidelity in the meantime he went on living his lonely sulky kind of life drinking a great deal more than was good for him in his own churlish manner and laughing to scorn any attempt at remonstrance from his wife or mrs tadman some few times ellen had endeavored to awaken him to the evil consequences that must needs ensue from his intemperate habits feeling that it would be a sin on her part to suffer him to go on without some effort to check him but her gently spoken warnings had been worse than useless End of chapter forty two recording by kirk ziegler ogden utah voiceovers by kirk dot com